Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today I'm so excited to have on Heather Blankenship. Right before we started recording, I asked her how she wanted to be introduced, and she said, I don't know, just I'm just Heather. So Heather, (laughs) welcome. I'm going to pass the torch to you to kind of introduce yourself and tell everybody everything you do because it's a lot. So break down your portfolio for us. You are such a huge real estate investor. I think probably everyone who listens to this follows you already. And if not, they need to go start. But can you introduce yourself to this audience? Sure. Thanks for having me, Natalie. It's nice to finally get to talk to you face to face as opposed to just comments and DMs. I know. I know. But I've been investing in real estate for over a decade. I bought my first property almost 12 years. Well, actually, it's almost 13 years ago now. I own RV parks, mobile home parks, Section 8 multifamily, glamping properties. I bought a boutique motel a couple years ago. And I don't know, I dabble in a little bit of everything, which is the opposite of what I tell my students. But I did RV parks for the first six years. It got really great at that before I started expanding to other things. And that's about 300 units now and about $30 million in real estate. Wild. Very, very, very impressive. And then do you have partners on any of these projects or you're just leveraging everything from one investment to the next? I don't. I've never had any partners in my real estate. I have partners in other businesses, but I've never had a partner in real estate. I don't know if I like that model or not. I have a lot of girlfriends who love it and they do really great at it. But some businesses I've had, the partnerships haven't worked out great. So I think I'm a little bit shy on the on the partnership side. I, yeah, I kind of agree. Partners has been the one thing myself that I've been like hesitant to venture into. I feel like business, you just kind of figure it out, but people are harder to work with. People are more unpredictable. They throw more your way. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so I would love to kind of break down how you got into all of this. RV parks, um, mobile home parks. I know that that's kind of like your bread and butter, I'd say, and what you're known for. You've ventured off into a lot since then. But how did you find that niche? So about a decade ago, I was driving across the country in a camper from Florida to California. And I kept thinking like all these properties are just like full of RVs. They've got to be making a ton of money. So I started searching RV parks for sale and Google and searching. I mean, just Googling it because I didn't know anything at all about it. I was a finance manager for enterprise. So it's not like I knew anything about business. I didn't know anything about real estate. And by the time I got to California, I had found this RV park that was in bankruptcy owned by the bank. And I sent the bank a message and was like, hey, I want to buy this. And they're like, how much money do you have? I'm like, I don't have any. I was 26. (laughs) And this was after the market had collapsed in 2008. So 
small regional local banks sometimes still had properties on their books that they really wanted to get rid of. And so they gave me a $3.2 million loan that was non-recourse with no money down, which totally does not happen now. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, you got so lucky. Well, the problem is I had to figure out how to run an RV park. The, the payment on the RV park was $18,500 a month. So I had interest only for six months. So I had about six months to figure out how the heck do you run an RV park? And that I'm going to tell you all that first year was rough because it was all trial and error. And that RV park has about 500 people at any given time at it now. Then it had people living there. So it wasn't as operationally intensive. But think about having like 130 short-term rentals in one location, which is what it's equivalent to because they bring their campers and they stay for an average of three days and then they leave. And while you don't have you know, you don't need a maintenance or a housekeeping staff to go in and like clean the whole thing. You do have bathhouses that they clean and pools that they clean. There's an office and a store. There's golf cart rentals and a pizza kitchen. And they do have to pick up the trash and clean out the fire pit. So operationally, it's pretty similar to a short-term rental. So imagine getting 130 short-term rentals all in one day. You're like, holy crap, what am I going to do? Plus, um, how many long-term tenants did you also acquire in that? Well, I acquired 100 of them, but I evicted them all. Oh, um, okay, okay. They were paying $300 a month, and that included all of their utilities. So it was totally losing money and really, really bad situation. So can I interject really quick? When you purchased this, did you ever ask to see like a profit and loss statement? No. Anything? I were you no like, idea. why are they going into bankruptcy? Can I? Yeah. No yeah. idea that I even needed to look for that. <laughs> okay. okay, got it. So you don't know what it. you don't know, right? <laughs> well, I had seen an appraisal and the okay. um, land itself was worth more than the $3.2 million. So okay. my very limited knowledge of business, I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense. That's logical. And so fast forward now over a decade and that property is worth over $13 million. And I've used the equity in it to be able to buy mobile home parks and Section 8 multifamily and other types of properties. Oh, my gosh. So how did it, first of all, how did it now become worth $13 million? Is that just with time for real estate or have you reinvested and made that property better? So RV parks are valued on a cap rate. So very different than buying like single family homes um, to like have a short term rental. So the income that the property brings in directly reflects the value of the property as opposed to being something that's like by the square foot and something like that, like you might have in a, in a single family home. And so continuing to maximize the operations and the online presence, the marketing, as well as there's over 10 streams of revenue at that property now. So as well as continually coming up with new things and new ways to make money increases the value in that property. So it takes in about two and a half million dollars a year now. It has about a 50% occup or operating expenses. So when you use cap rates and do your math, you end up at about $13 million. Okay. Okay. Amazing. So there's no like value. Well, I know you said earlier like the appraisal came back where the land was actually worth more than the business itself, right? So at this point- Well, the point land was worth more than the price they were asking. Okay. So not knowing how to evaluate the business probably wasn't relevant at that point. Okay. 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 Fair enough. And so that one is still fully operational. You still own that and everything. Amazing. Okay. And then you've used that in order to purchase other investments. So let's talk about those. Sure. What do you want to talk about? 
<laughs> okay, so from this one, did you, if I owed that much money, if I had a bank loan for $3.2 million, it would be so scary for me to pull out equity in that and put that into something else. Like, how did you know with no experience in this? Like, yeah, this is the right move. I, I can over leverage myself a little bit more. So I was five years in before I okay. decided, hey, I'm going to branch into another asset class. So okay. I had solidly learned the RV park industry and was doing really well at that original property before I decided to leverage it and go out and buy something else. And okay. when I did go out and buy something else, I had become throughout that five years, I had become a broker selling RV parks and mobile home parks all over the U.S. I did over $300 million in transactions. So I got to see tons of profit and loss statements, truly learn from like our underwriters how to evaluate an RV park and a mobile home park, how to get really great financing, you know, what institutional buyers look for. So I really learned a skill in being able to underwrite those properties. So when I did leverage it and go out and buy other properties, I knew exactly what I was looking for and what kind of money I could make and where the value add was. So doing that, I bought mobile home park. I bought four more mobile home parks at that point. So the timeline here was you bought the first one, waited five years till you really knew that business, and then you immediately bought four. Yeah, well, they're, they're all in the same zip code. Okay. So in order, I see a lot of people on Instagram excited and bragging about, oh my gosh, I have a short-term rental in like, Austin, Texas, and I have one in Florida. And oh my gosh, I'm going to get one in the mountains and go to Colorado. And I just love New York City, y'all, and blah, 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 blah. And so they have all these locations that they like to visit. Mm -hmm. And that's their business model. They buy these short term rentals in these different places. I'm very much set on building a team and buying things in similar markets, meaning all 300 units are within an hour of each other. I'm in three markets that are all an hour apart, except for the motel is in Florida. I live in Florida now, and it's like 15 minutes from my house. So okay. I like buying in the same market so that I can build a really great team. And when something's going wrong with one team, maybe someone's quit, maybe someone's sick, you know, whatever the case may be, I can pull from my other teams to help that one out and vice versa. I have about 30 employees within that hour radius of each other. And so whether it's my housekeeping staff, like I'm not looking for a cleaner in a new market like some people might when they're buying their short-term rentals. I have multiple cleaners on staff that work 40 hours a week for me. And so instead of paying them, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever their, their rate is for the job, they're paid by the hour, just like a hotel might do. So the four mobile home parks that I bought are all within an hour of each other. And I was able to hire a property manager to oversee all four hire a full-time maintenance guy to see all oversee all four. So operationally, it just works out better. I don't go into a new market without enough properties to be able to build a team in that market. And are these close to the original RV park or that's also a separate market? They're an hour away. So okay. It, okay. yes, an hour drive sucks, but worst case, I can pull from other teams. And actually, the employees that are the um, park, the park manager and the maintenance manager are people who originally worked for that first property. Okay. So your mobile home parks, those are not short-term rentals at all. They are not. They are very different. Yeah. Okay. They're affordable housing, even people renting them through Section 8. So a very different asset class. Okay. So how did you learn that? Like once you knew RV parks as well as you did after five years, why not just drill down into that further? What made you, you even said at the beginning, 
you did, took a different approach to what you teach your students. So what, what was the thought process there? So RV parks, kind of like short-term rentals, are a really active asset class. They're heavy operationally. They require employees and customers and responses and marketing and all of these aspects like a business does. They are not like, you know, having an apartment complex that's, you know, maybe you get a, a small multifamily and there's four units and you've got all four units rented. You really don't have a lot of activity going on there unless someone decides to move or you have a small repair every once in a while. Well, RV parks are more like short-term rentals. Back to that whole analogy of 130 of them in one spot. Yep. And I ran that property myself the first five to six years and I got pregnant with my daughter, uh, my oldest child. I have four kids. I got pregnant with my oldest the same month I bought that original RV park. So I was having kids like all throughout this. And I got to thinking, you know, eventually I'm probably not going to want to work out here full time. So what do I do that's a little bit more passive? And our industry oftentimes groups RV parks and mobile home parks into the same category. And they are wildly different asset classes, but they have the similarity of like you kind of own the ground and then something comes on it. They hook up mm -hmm. like there's a few similarities, but it kind of ends there. And like I said, I started in brokerage and they group RV parks and mobile home parks together. So it was a new niche that I had learned and was comfortable and familiar with when I was thinking about how do I stabilize my portfolio as in stabilize the risk. Mobile home parks, affordable housing, regardless of the economy and what's happening, people always need an affordable place to live. Also, when you put them on Section 8, the rent is direct deposited into your account the first of every month. So while some people were having all these issues during COVID with getting people to pay rent, mine was being direct deposited by the government the first of every month. So it's a, it's a very different business model that kind of stabilizes each other out because you're so diversified. Okay. Okay. And do you, are all of your tenants through Section 8 housing, all of them you're getting paid by the government or do you have people who do pay you directly? I do have people who pay directly, but the majority, because I have Section 8 multifamily as well. Okay. Uh, but the majority of them are through Section 8. Okay. Okay. Got it. I want to go back to your talk about the operations here. I'm actually really intrigued that you, I know the logic of what you're saying, like keeping them in the same market, you're able to use the same operations team. But I would almost think there's enough work with properties of this scale to like have a full time team at each one. But they're able to travel within that hour distance and like. Oh, there is a there is a full time team at each property. Oh, OK. But the point okay. is, like, for example, one of my managers at that original park, which is my largest property, her mom had surgery and she had to have surgery like all at the same time. And her mom is my head of housekeeping. And she is my property manager. So with both of them being out in October is my busiest month of the year. So that we just had October. They were out during October. So I needed to, and they couldn't help it. It was like an emergency yeah, situation. Yeah. I needed to pull people in from one of the other properties to be back up and help what's going on there. Because while they, you have this team, it's not a big enough operation. When you're a small business, you don't have backups for every role. Yeah. Meaning like if your admin takes a day off, like just nothing gets done unless you're a large enough company to have multiple employees that can fill that role. So that's kind of a hack for that. Being able to pull them from another property to be back up and help out is always really important. And I think, too, I, I wonder 
would you have been comfortable getting four RV parks within an hour distance? Because then I wonder if you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you feel like you would have been competing too much with like the same short term rentals and like tourists like dipping into each other's business? Like I feel like with mobile home parks, it's different. Like enough people needed housing there. Yeah. So I'm in my markets are like East Tennessee. So that original RV park is in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. I can't imagine with talking about short term rentals, y'all aren't familiar with that. It's like the most visited national Mm -hmm. park in the country. That area has such high demand. You could have bought four there and still done great. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I also want to ask, do you provide any, like, have you purchased any RVs? Do you own any RVs? Do you own any mobile homes? Or is everybody bringing their own and you just have the land and the amenities? All right, hosts, can we keep it real for a sec? Are you absolutely fed up with constant changes from third-party booking platforms switching up your listing ranking randomly? Well, I've got a secret weapon for boosting your bookings and increasing guest loyalty. Introducing StayFi, your ultimate tool for gathering guest information, guest marketing, and fostering brand loyalty. How does it work? Have you ever visited a coffee shop where you enter your email in order to get on the Wi-Fi? StayFi operates the exact same way. Every single guest, not just the one who made the booking, has to provide their information when connecting, so you can start building your email list to stay in touch with every guest you've ever hosted. StayFi provides you with advanced email and text marketing tools to communicate with that growing contact list. As you cultivate your thriving list of subscribers, one quick email or automated series can turn into dozens of bookings where you are not relying on your OTA's algorithm. Impressive, right? So use code NOVACANCY for an exclusive 50% off your first three months with StayFi. It's not just about attracting new guests. It's about transforming one-time visitors into lifelong customers. Don't wait any longer to start building that contact list and use code NOVACANCY today to kickstart your guest loyalty program with StayFi. To lock in your StayFi discount and start cultivating your engaged guest list, go to stayfi.com slash NOVACANCY and watch your bookings soar. So I do both. As far as the RV park goes, I have tiny homes and glamping tents and RVs as well as an Airstream, even though it's an RV, they're they're a little bit more unique and people mm-hmm. look for them specifically. They're all rented on short-term rental sites like Airbnb or I use Airbnb. Some people use VRBO and they rent the same as what y'all are used to doing with short-term rentals. The RVs bring in, the campers bring in about $30,000 a year for each camper. They do really well and they are in that Pigeon Forge market. So it's a really high demand for about 10 months of the year there. As far as the mobile home parks go, that's a little different because the people are living there. I do own the homes. In order for them to be on Section 8, you've got to own the home because people need somewhere to move into. Um, Otherwise, you can't just rent them a lot on Section 8. But mobile large institutional buyers for mobile home parks, they like to own the lot only. But where I already have the team in place, it's crazy the difference in what you can rent them for. In my market, you can rent a lot for like $300 to $350 a month. You bring your own mobile home. And so as the owner, I'm getting like $300, $350 a month. Through Section 8, I can rent the home for $1,500 a month. So it's a crazy difference. I like owning the home. The cash flow is great. Yeah, obviously. How much do you pay to own the home? Or when you bought the whole, or did you buy the land and then individually buy each mobile home? Or when you purchased these properties, it came with all the mobile homes there? A little bit of both. They There were mobile homes already in place that the, it's called park-owned homes versus tenant-owned homes. 
there were already park-owned homes that the previous owner owned, but there were tenant-owned homes and they were paying really low amounts. So I bought back most of those over the last, I think I've owned those five or six years now, and remodeled them. So the price I paid for the mobile homes included most of that. And we put about $10,000 into each home because they're older and they Mm -hmm. need new roofs. They need lots of work. So they're usually ten dollars to $15,000 for us to remodel. And they rent for somewhere between twelve dollars and $1,500 a month. Ten to $15,000 to remodel an entire mobile home. And then you're yes. getting twelve dollars to $1,500 a month. Yes. So the you're crazy good cash flow. Making it back within a year. And then it's just pure profit from there. As long as nothing goes wrong. As long as nothing else breaks. So what is the, I know nothing about mobile homes. I do own an Airstream, but besides that, I know nothing about mobile homes. What, like, how often do they break? Like, are these expensive to upkeep at all or? No, the upkeep's not a big deal. It's more if you don't do, it's like any other long-term rentals. If you don't do a great job screening your tenants, like you end up in trouble quick. They destroy a ton of stuff that's thousands of dollars to fix. So getting really great at screening your tenants makes all the difference in uh, long-term rentals. So I have a question here regarding Section 8 housing. If there were damages that you had to try and go for after they move out, does the tenant pay for it or? No. They have no money. There's nothing to There's go no after. no money, they're, right. They're broke. So and you can take them you... to court and you can do whatever, but you're not getting them. There's no way to get the money. They don't have any money. How do you screen a guest like that then? Like to me, if I were, I don't do any long-term rentals, but if I were, my thing would be like threaten them with like a hefty deposit that you only get back if the place is immaculate when you check out. And they're not going to be able to afford the deposit. So you wouldn't have any tenants, right? Because they don't have any money. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on Section 8. So you you, do this? (laughs) You have a really strict screening process that you do the exact same every time. So you're not, you you know, going against landlord tenant laws in your state and whatever. You don't want to be discriminating. And so people are going to have perfect credit or criminal histories when we're talking about, you know, mobile home parks. Sure. So you need to come up with where you're at with that. Mine can't have had evictions within 10 years. Mm-hmm. Their criminal history can't be within 10 years. And when you're looking at the criminal history, you got to make sure it's not clean for the last 10 years because they didn't just come out of prison. Their employment, <laughs> you're, yeah, you're verifying verbally, not just looking at paycheck stubs that they've been at their job at least a year, that they make three times or more the income of the cost of rent. You're doing background checks and credit checks on anyone who's going to live there. Um, What's the reason for that question, that they have to make three times the cost of rent? Because if they're not paying the rent regardless, they need to make three times to have enough to live. Because if they don't make three times the rent, they don't have enough money left over to pay for gas, to go to work, to pay for their car, their groceries, like just general living expenses. And okay, so you okay. may th- look at it and think, you know, where I live in Florida, you'd probably pay $5,000 a month for renting like a normal house in the neighborhood I live in. It's totally crazy expensive here. People are going to make three times the rent, right? But in Tennessee, when we're talking about rent that's 1000 to 1500 they need to make three times the rent. Because there's got to be enough money left over to afford that. Sure, sure. No, but I'm just saying since they're not actually paying rent, right? That's no, no, no. So they so they pay a portion. Like Section Eight doesn't mean that they pay nothing. Uh, Um, there are I did not know that. So they get a voucher. It's it's like a blue form, and they're approved for a certain amount. So not only is there an amount that their rent can be, there's a portion that the government pays, and there's a portion that they pay. 
it is illegal for you as a landlord to take the government's portion and not make sure that the tenant also pays their portion. And so I've seen it as low as the tenant paying nothing or like 50 bucks. And then sometimes the tenant pays seven or $800 of that. Okay. It's all based on the income from the job that they have, how many children they have. What you they know, all those individually qualify for. Exactly. Okay. Yes. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have a full voucher. And I'll actually tell you, the people who have had full vouchers have been worse tenants and this, people are going to get mad about this comment because I always get hate for saying this. But No, I know. The, that's why I asked, like, how how do you screen the, people who have the, nothing on the line, you know? Yeah, the people who have no, that have 100% vouchers and don't have to pay anything have totally sucked as tenants. Like, of course, they, people can get they mad, but stuff of up, course. They call for maintenance all the time. They won't mow their grass. Like, it just sucks. Like, I'm sure there's people out there that are going to be like, I have some great tenants like that. There's exceptions so to every rule. Yeah. Okay, come after that us. That is not been the case for me. The ones who are good tenants, like I have a lady who, you know how they have hair salons in Walmart in some places? Like there's a little. I actually like, didn't know that. Okay. Some cities have like a hair salon inside Walmart. It's like a Great Clips kind of place. Oh, okay. okay. It's not Great Clips, but it's like that type of style sure. of place. I have a lady who's worked in there for like 15 years. And she has three kids and the baby daddy went to prison. So she's trying to support her three kids. And she goes to work every day. She works really hard, but she does not make enough money to support mm -hmm. all three kids. And she's one of my best tenants. And she's yeah. doing everything she can to make ends meet. She pays her portion on time every month. The government pays the rest. Those are the kind of tenants that are really great. They're the ones mm -hmm. who are like actively trying really hard and just need that little bit of extra help. During COVID, when you said ton of long-term, you know, landlords and stuff were not being able to collect rent, at that time, I know you were still getting your government checks, but did you have your tenants dropping off on their portion? Were they not making their, their remainder? They, they were. And here's the thing. I think a lot of the landlords that had trouble with people paying was because the people didn't have to pay, meaning like the, the, the cities weren't doing evictions like they were. They were like prolonging all of that stuff. These people, when they get housing with Section 8, they have been on a wait list. Like the county, I'm in two different counties for Section 8, and they have a longer than two-year wait list to get housing. So they've either been, some of them are living in churches, they're living on their friends' couches, they aren't living in the greatest situations, they're waiting for their turn to get housing. And so once they get in, they do not want to lose mm -hmm. their voucher. And if they don't okay. pay their portion... I'm legally required to report to Section 8, to the office, that they didn't pay. And so they're paying, the, yeah. unlike the other tenants who were like, well, no one's going to evict me. These people don't want to get in trouble with the Section 8 program. Okay, that makes so much sense. Okay, got it. So it's not like a free-for-all. You just sign up and you get your rent covered. There's actually a wait list for this and a whole qualification process. Yes, Once you're absolutely. in, that is like gold. Exactly. Okay. Okay. That makes so much sense. And then do you plan for when a long-term tenant moves out? Actually, that's another question. How long do most of your tenants stay there for? Are they signing a year lease at a time? Do you have people who have been there, you know, 15 years? Well, you haven't even operated for that long, but how long are your people there for? Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else. Some of them are there for a short period and some of them are there forever. I have okay. one lady who she owns her own home and she's been there for 30 years. So sometimes they stay a long time, some they don't. They are one-year leases. That's what we sign with the Section 8 program. 
And depending on each county does it a little differently, they reinspect every two years. So we can sign that lease with them again year two, but then the county is going to come reinspect the property and make sure it still meets all the standards. We're doing our upkeep, the tenant's not destroying stuff, and then we re-sign a lease again. You do have to give them, again, different counties are different. My county, I have to give a 90-day notice for a rent increase and then proof of why the rent increase needs to happen. And the proof can be as simple as like the market rent in the area has gone up. Here's proof to show that. Or my property taxes and my property taxes and insurance <laughs> went up dramatically last year. So we did rent increases across the board. We didn't have a choice. So we had to give the notice to the Section 8 uh, caseworker as well as the tenant as we're doing those rent increases. It's definitely a little bit more administratively active. Yeah. Like hearing all of this, I know that you got into this because it's like, oh, this seems like a like your RV park was a very active asset class and this would be more passive. This seems just as complicated. It's um, not at all. If you own okay. long-term rentals, you're constantly looking for new tenants and you're having to do showings and you're putting your listings on apartments.com or wherever you're putting them. It's the same kind of thing. You're just <laughs> doing it with a different different re uh, avenue. Sure, sure. I also want to know during COVID and stuff at this point. So luckily your Section 8 tenants were still, you still collected rent from that, no problem. How did the RV park do during that time? Because that was such a cheaper way to vacation and more outdoorsy. Like, was that still a very strong profit time for you? At first, it wasn't. I was freaking out because they closed everything down to the point to where they wouldn't let anybody go anywhere. And the activists for the industry, RV parks are a huge industry. They're like 2.2% of the GDP. So we have people what? who, yeah, outdoor hospitality is a huge thing. So 2% um, of the entire GDP in the yes, parks is outdoor hospitality. And so our, we have people who advocate for different legislation and things like that. And they ended up being able to get lots of RV parks opened back up in different areas because, as you said, it was a really great way to still like go on vacation yeah. or just get out of the house and be able to do something that's outside and you're not in close proximity to people. So it only lasted a couple months that we weren't able to open and that we laid people off. After that, I'm trying to remember back, I think it was about three months. I was starting to freak out, but at least it was part of off season for the properties that I were in. Okay. The, the locations that I was in. So we opened back up just as like in season was starting to happen. And all RV parks were crazy busy because, like you said, they didn't have other options, kind of like Airbnbs. Like, people mm -hmm. didn't have other options. So RV parks did really well during that. Okay, okay. Before we wrap up here, I would also love to touch on your boutique hotel. How, like, I know, you know, the RV park, you went into mobile homes, and it seems like those are kind of considered the same asset class. Where did the boutique motel, hotel come from? Okay, so I love the short-term rental stuff. My Tiny homes, glamping tents, rental campers, all that stuff's super fun to me. And I moved 900 miles away from all of my properties. Christmas will be five years ago. And everything operated so much better because I was forced to work on my business instead of in my business. We got great operating procedures, had SOPs for the employees. It couldn't be me running to get an air conditioner at Walmart in the middle of the night because something stopped working. You know, I couldn't do those things anymore. And it, it made me rely on my team and, I'll, you know, delegate a lot of that stuff. And so living down here in Florida, I got kind of bored. 
<laughs> and the kids and I were driving to a different park than we normally go to because they wanted to go see something specific. And I was driving by this place and there was this random little sign. It's somewhere here in my office. They just said for sale on this like rundown motel that was right across the street from the beach. And I was like, what? this is crazy. So my mom is my COO and she's way better at talking to old people than I am. I totally suck at it. And so I send her a picture of her and I'm like, call and see what these people say. So she calls the guy who was, he's like 85 and the most perverted, difficult old man I've ever dealt with. The whole closing process was awful. But drove by, found it, wrote a couple offers and ended up buying it. But it is a total gut remodel. So we are in the end process with approvals from the city. Commercial real estate works so different, y'all. When you're remodeling your single family home or your small multifamily, maybe you have to get a permit. Maybe you don't. Usually it takes like one meeting and they approve it. For commercial, it takes months and months and months to go through professional architectural drawings and city approval and zoning inspectors and like all of this process for commercial real estate is so different. So it has taken us a year and a half, y'all to finally finish approval with the city. So this isn't even operational yet. No, we've been um, going through all of the architectural city planning, all that stuff for a year and a half. And how many units is the uh, hotel? Hotel, motel? How do you decide if it's a hotel or motel? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know the answer to that. I think motels are when the door is outside, is exterior facing. And hotels, like you go through a lobby. Doors are exterior facing. Okay. So it'll be really easy to run it similar to short-term rentals. Okay. Got it. And, you know, have the individual locks and all that stuff. I won't need someone on site to, like, check people in and things like that. Um, There are 14 rooms, I guess we call them. Doors. What are they? Keys? I think Doors? they call hotels keys. I think they say keys. Oh, okay. And yeah, I'm excited about it. It's very different than the other stuff that I do, but still a short-term rental. So how different could it be? So how did you run numbers on this? Like when you put in those offers and stuff, just your experience, not only totally different asset classes, but a completely different market as well. Like how did you know what to, you know, what would be profitable here? What was a smart offer? Yeah, so I pulled resources from all different places. I started with the same thing you would when you're buying a short-term rental. I looked at AirDNA to see and Price Labs to see the demand of the area and what was happening with the short-term rentals. And while the hotels don't work exactly the same way, you could see what the demand was for the area. I also read all kinds of articles on the tourism for the area to see if it was growing. And their Chamber of Commerce puts out tons of stuff related to the tourism of the area and what's happening. And because of its location and size being a commercial property, we're back to that whole cap rate thing where it's not evaluated on this like price per square foot and things like that. So I built out a profit and loss statement on all of my expenses and what I thought I could take in a night based on what the other hotels are doing, mixed with what the short term rentals were doing and figured out a price that I thought would work. Okay. So far, I know this one's not operational, so you can't totally compare apples to apples, but of the three types of projects you ventured into, we'll say the OG RV park, the mobile home parks, and now boutique boutique motel, what has kind of been your favorite? Like what has lit you up the most? What are you like most excited to continue doing? Yeah, I I really like having the diversification of the portfolio. I think 
I have a mildly impulsive personality, so it keeps me interested to have something different going on all the time. Um, I like how well the RV parks cash flow. Um, I assume the motel will be similar, that it will cash flow really well, but I like the stability of the mobile home parks. Mm -hmm. I will be 40 next year. So as I'm thinking about like, quote unquote, retirement, I probably won't keep the the motel or the RV parks forever because they're operationally intensive and they really? are things okay. that are easy to hire a management company for. I will probably keep the Section 8 multifamily and mobile home parks forever. They're easy operationally. So those will be more like my retirement, like, you know, mailbox money that keeps coming in every month. Okay. And the other stuff I'll eventually sell. So my last question for you, and I know you had said that you kind of did the opposite of what you teach your students. Like you would recommend they niche down and become experts, but it seems like the diversification has really worked well for you. So well, I, I don't know. do the opposite. I was saying owning all the different things is the opposite. I want them to do what I did, which is get really oh. great at something okay. before they venture into something else. The, the okay. trouble becomes they hear people on social media like myself or whoever they're following and they're like, oh, I do this and I do this and I have all these streams of revenue. But if they're good at it, they started out with one and got really great at one before they diversified into those other things. Sure, sure. Because you waited five years between RV Park and Mobile Home Parks. And then how long did you wait before Mobile Home Parks were good and then you moved on to the boutique? Um, Probably another five because I'm 12 years in and I bought that a year and a half ago. So So in five years from now, do we see another (laughs) asset class entering the picture? I don't think so. I think I'm going, I've been reading this book. It's sitting on my desk. It's called Lend to Live. It's about being a private money lender. I think my next venture will be being a private money lender. I think that's what I'm going to do next. Ooh, that's fun. Okay. Are you waiting five years for that? Or is that like, no, I think that's going to be in my, in my uh, 2024. (laughs) The mastermind girls and I just did a workshop before I came on here and we were doing goal setting workshops for 2024, and I think that'll be in my 2024 goals. Lend to Live. I will have to read it. And before we sign off here, I have to thank you for the other book recommendation you gave me. And it was the 10X is Easier Than 2X book. Oh, my gosh. That book was life changing with the way you think about stuff, right? Literally life changing, Heather. And I like I went on a whole rant on my Instagram stories to talk about it because I own this one Airstream and I have literally been trying to get it parked somewhere for a year. And I couldn't. And I was like, how hard can it be? Like, I just wanted to find a property owner who already operates a short-term rental, who has a big enough backyard that we can stick this in the back, rent it separately, and I can kind of borrow from their cleaner and like use their laundry facilities and stuff. And it was so hard. Like, anytime I found an owner and explained this, they were like, oh, we'll just buy an Airstream. Like, we can do that. And I think I realized after reading this book, I was like, if I had just started with 10 Airstreams, it would have forced me to like buy land and just hack this whole thing have the operations there to justify a whole staff and and do what you're doing with your RV park. So I want to thank you for that book recommendation. Highly recommend anybody reads it. Yeah, it really like opened my eyes to just like how, I don't know, 10X is easier. Like it really is. It forces you to like discard all these other things that are getting in the way. So thank you for that. The same light bulbs I had going off when I read it. I recommend it to everybody. It's a really great book. Okay, so that one, I'll put that in the show notes and then Lend to Live. Any book you recommend now, I will be reading. So I will post that one next. Well, this one's only if you want to be a private money lender. So it's a little more niche than the 10X book. (laughs) Heather, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And I think people will get a lot out of this episode. We've never talked about RV parks and mobile home parks on this, on No Vacancy, the podcast. So I think uh, 
a lot of light bulbs will be going off. And I encourage anybody who has more questions to please go find Heather on Instagram. We'll link her here and you can connect with her there. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, host, you know that brand new couch that you just bought for your listing? Oh, and the bed and the mattress and all your high quality linens and that whole outdoor furniture set. Did you know that you could have saved up to 40, 50, or even 60% on those? There's no catch and there's no cost. All there is is Minoan. As a host, you can sign up to Minoan's group pricing option for free and start shopping from over 200 of your favorite home furnishing brands. It's as easy as instead of adding to cart on the brand's website, add it to cart via the Minoan Chrome extension and watch the discounts start adding up. We all know that design and quality are essential for standing out as hosts in today's market, and nothing makes that easier than shopping via Minoan. I don't have to sacrifice quality for price with Minoan. I get the best products at the best pricing. Find the link in my show notes to get started and never pay full price again. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole? This one is short and sweet. I pulled this from a hosting Facebook group, specifically the Big Bear Vacation Rental Owners Group. So this is the group I'm hanging out on most of the time, my local stomping grounds. Let's just read this guest inquiry, okay? Hi, Mike. This is Julie. We are planning a trip to Big Bear Lake from 1225 to the 28th. I love everything about this property, except the bedding. Are you able to change all of the sheet and duvet covers to white? Thanks. So a little backstory. I know who this property manager is, this host that posted this screenshot. And I am pretty sure that he does not, he co-hosts a lot of properties up in Big Bear. I'm pretty sure he doesn't take anything on that's less than like a five bedroom home, maybe four bedrooms. He does bigger scale properties in Big Bear. So without seeing the property, I can already run some quick numbers for you. There are probably I'd say minimum 10 beds in this listing. Like knowing it's a four bedroom, at least four or five bedroom place and probably one room is bunk beds. I think we're looking at about 10 beds. So I just ran some quick numbers for you guys, okay? I went to Minoan, the lovely sponsor of today's episode, went to their dashboard, pulled up their pricing with, with Brooklinen, okay? So the hospitality pricing for pretty decent brand. Here, here's the price we're looking at. For 10 brand new sets of white sheets and duvet covers and pillowcases, okay? Here's our breakdown. Also, the pricing that they'll give you is actually a range depending on the size of the bed, right? So twin size will be smaller all the way up to king. So what I did is I'm just averaging the prices here and assuming all beds are like a full slash queen. So I'm taking averages, okay? Adjust these for the actual bed sizes that you have. Average, we're looking at $30 a pillowcase, two pillowcases per bed, okay? We're looking at $50 per flat sheet, $50 for an average fitted sheet, $100 for a duvet cover. So we've got 30, 30, 50, 50, 100. That is $260 per bed times 10 beds. Like I said, I, I haven't seen the property, but it's a minimum of 10 beds. I can tell you that. This woman wants $2,600 spent for her to have all white sheets and duvets. And honey, let me tell you, there is a plethora of listings in Big Bear that already have all white. Just book one of those. Just book one of those. You're trying to book a three-night stay and you want $2,600 worth of bedding dropped on your reservation. 
Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The audacity. If guests have one thing, it's the audacity. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.